Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome everyone to a sold out jam-packed heel center. Welcome everyone to Bad Blood in your house. We are live from St. Louis, Missouri. And take a look, if you would, at this jam-packed arena. All these WWF fans getting ready for a bad blood. Hello, everyone. Vince it's October 5th, 1997. In your house, bad blood, St. Louis, Missouri. One of the most significant nights in pro wrestling history. Also, it should be <clears throat> noted, but one of the most footnoted WWE events of all time. For one thing, Brian Pillman, see the Pillman 9mm episode of this podcast, died earlier that day. And WWE owner playing announcer Vince McMahon awkwardly had to inform the viewers about it during the entrances of the first match. Also, this was the last pay-per-view at which McMahon served as the play-by-play -play guy at all. The next event after this one was the Survivor Series, see the Brett Screwed Brett episodes of this podcast, after which McMahon would be eventually acknowledged as the owner of the company and not a pretend on-screen employee thereof. More footnotes. Due to Pillman's tragic absence, they had to add two matches to the card at the last minute, one of which being a minis tag team match featuring Max Mini and Nova against Mosaic and Tarantula. This is some old school pro wrestling playbook stuff. When in doubt, go small. It's actually a pretty fun match, but WWE's attempt at a minis division at this exact point in its history is a pretty good measure of how small, no pun intended, the WWE roster was right then. One more odd footnote. During a match later in the night that saw Bret Hart and the British Bulldog against Vader and the Patriot, two fans tried to get into the ring. This kind of thing happens in pro wrestling from time to time, but mostly you hear stories about fan run-ins in the old days, back when things were a little bit more real. It may be a good measure of how real things were getting at this point in time that fans felt compelled to insert themselves into the action. But the real attraction here was the main event. Hell in a Cell, the first one ever, Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker, and the winner gets a shot at Champ Bret Hart at the Survivor Series. Let's set the timeline here. This is before the Montreal Screwjob. So if you listen to the last two episodes of this podcast, well, sorry to spoil the suspense, but what matters here really isn't who wins or loses. It's the drama that unfolded within this match, or rather, within the cell. The match was certifiably awesome. It got five stars from wrestling writer Dave Meltzer. And listen, Meltzer doesn't need image rehab, but there's been this thing where old wrestlers ironically talk shit about him and certain fans have taken exception to his ranking system over the years. But the thing is, Meltzer is an institution. 
I mean that as a compliment. The living history that Meltzer has assembled over the years is essential to everything, to, to, to Bruce Pritchard's podcast, where Meltzer is simultaneously, performatively painted as the bane of the industry. And Meltzer's ratings, even if you think they're flawed, they're still the starting point for just about any discussion we have about how good a match was. Dave Meltzer, like it or not, gives us a lot of the vocabulary we have to talk about wrestling's past. Anyway, Meltzer gave this one five stars, which is incredible, especially if you think he's biased, because he doesn't hand them out freely or frequently to the WWE product, and he didn't give WWE another five-star rating until 14 years later in 2011. So first of all, let's talk about the cell. The Hell in a Cell is a variation on a steel cage match, which means, obviously, a cage is built around the ring. Usually it's right up against the ring. Usually the cage was made of chain links stretched between metal poles at the corners, but in WWE though, up to this point the steel cage was made of blue steel. In some ways, a less forgiving setup than chain link, but it never had the gritty cockfighting vibe that the old cages had. Hell in a Cell brought back that vibe, and they used a much larger cage, wide enough to encompass the ringside floor to allow it outside the ring combat, and it had a ceiling on it. Nominally to keep outside interference out of the ring, but functionally to introduce a whole new playground of pain. More on that later. Anyway, The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels are in the cell, and Shawn is visibly nervous as the match starts, but eventually he realizes he's gonna have to fight. The first stanza of the match is back and forth, but it's mostly forth, or back, whichever one means The Undertaker, as he methodically bullies Michaels around the cage. Act two is on the floor outside the ring, inside the cage, uh, where Undertaker mostly slams Sean into the cage. Finally, Sean gets control with some aerial maneuvers and some chair shots and a pile driver on the steel ring steps. At one point, Undertaker tosses Michaels over the top rope and he hits a cameraman and gets mad and levels him. It's all part of the show, but in the moment, the crowd doesn't know what to think. Really? It's all a setup. See, they open the door of the cage to help the cameraman to get quote unquote medical attention. And yep, Michaels and Taker take the opportunity to take the fight outside. And there's a truly iconic spot there where Taker catapults Sean face first in the cage and he starts bleeding like crazy. Brief sidebar, Sean actually cuts his own forehead while being tossed into the cage. It's not unheard of at all, but it's unusual for it to be caught on camera like that. And even though that broke the fourth wall, it helped symbolize the masochism of the match and turned the whole thing into a brutal legend. The blood thing, as an aside, double sidebar, sorry, WWE doesn't do much with blood anymore for a lot of health-based reasons, but mostly to appeal to a more family-friendly audience. They even started a thing where they would show bloody footage in black and white to make it less graphic on national television. Anyway, as WWE distanced themselves from the bloodletting, it came to be seen as a kind of retro Southern wrestling sort of thing, which isn't entirely untrue. But during the Attitude Era, both in the spirit of excess and because it was being used so effectively in upstart promotion ECW, WWE had a good bit of blood. If you don't watch wrestling, and if you don't, thanks for listening, you might say, wait, this is pro wrestling. Don't they bleed all the time? Well, no, only sparingly, at least in WWE. And that's why moments like this really stand out in the rewatch. Anyway. Back to the action. Taker and Sean eventually make it up to the roof of the cell. If you know wrestling, you know that the next Hell in a Cell match was much more terrifying than this one. More on that in coming episodes. But this match was the rather brilliant first draft of the Undertaker Mankind sequel. 
In this match, Taker slams Michaels around the top of the cell, and then when Sean tries to climb down to the floor, Taker stomps his fingers and sends him crashing through the ringside announce table. That should have been enough to end the match, but see, they're not in the ring. When Undertaker finally gets Sean back into the ring, he choke slams him off the top rope, hits him with a revenge chair shot, and then signals for a signature tombstone pile driver. And then... Oh my God, wait a minute, it's Paul Bear! It's Paul Bear! And that, that's gotta be, that's gotta be Kane! That's gotta be Kane! From Spotify and The Ringer, this is the Book of Wrestling, 25 catchphrases that explain the Attitude Era. I'm David Schumann. Every horror story starts out with the seed of an idea. Here's Glenn Jacobs, a.k.a. Kane, when I talked to him about how the character came to be. The first time I really felt like a WWE superstar because they're having this great match and then they both go down and everybody's watching the ring and then all of a sudden, boom, and the lights go out and then the creepy music plays and then every eye in the audience shifts and there's, you know, it's sold out. Here in St. Louis is 15,000 people and they're all looking right at me. And for a minute, it's just utter silence because you know what, I mean, what happened? Did the power go out? You know, what, what's that? What is this creepy music? And then they're like, who's that? And then I think, you know, Vince is famously is screaming. That's gotta be Kane. The audience knew it. They just did. It's like, Oh, that's the guy <laughs> that they've been talking about for months now. I was like, this is, wow, this is like what, you know, guys like Undertaker and then Sean, this is what it feels like to come out. And, you know, and then of course the audience went nuts and it's like, man, this is just awesome feeling. And then at the same time, it's also like, just got to go out there and not mess this up. But for me personally, my thought of going out the first night in St. Louis at Hell in the Cell, uh, and of course, Shawn Michaels and Undertaker also have to have a classic match. It made things even worse for me because I'm like, good Lord, I don't want to go out there and screw this whole thing up. Not only my storyline, but just like, you know, one of the greatest matches ever. My first thought is do this. Don't mess it up. Did I have questions? You know, of course, deep down, I didn't. Deep down, I knew that I could. But of course, you always question yourself when you're doing something for the first time. Um, so I, I was really nervous. And yeah, there was a lot of pressure. The pressure, of course, came not just from the role, a massively significant one to be sure, but also from Jacobs' recent career history, a path that saw him debuting WWE as evil dentist Isaac Yankum DDS, and then transition overnight into fake Diesel. See the You Want a War episode of this pod? An ill-conceived replacement version of Kevin Nash's famous character after Nash left town to work for WCW. After that failed, Jacobs went on loan to Memphis and then to Puerto Rico, where he got the call that they had a new idea for him, the long-lost brother of The Undertaker. They needed an opponent for Undertaker for a paper. And they wanted it to be me because I matched up physically with Mark. But of course, they didn't want it to be any of the other characters. And they're trying to figure out, okay, what do we do? We have to put him under a mask so he's not so recognizable. But then there has to be a reason to have the mask. So then they start thinking about the reason for the mask and they come up with this storyline of the long lost brother Kane who'd been burned to fire. And then 
Vince liked the idea so much. Vince was like, well, why are we just going to do this and hot shot it for one match? This is an actual storyline that we need to develop. At this point in history, it should be established that The Undertaker is a good guy, a babyface. And like so many villains turned heroes before him, his shift to the right side of the force coincided with a split from his dastardly manager, Paul Bearer. But Bearer did not go quietly into the night. He stuck around to antagonize Undertaker, like Jimmy Hart did to Jerry Lawler in Memphis, or like Bobby Heenan did to Hulk Hogan in 80s WWE. Bearer dramatically turned on Undertaker to side with his rival, Mankind, McFoley's first WWE gimmick, and also managed Vader and the Executioner in his crusade against his old protege along the way. The Executioner was a short-lived gimmick for fabulous freebird Terry Gordy, who was an absolute god in his prime. But at this point, he'd been diminished by a stroke he suffered on a plane after reportedly taking like 50 prescription pain pills and falling into a coma. So the less said about this latter-day gimmick, probably the better. Paul Bearer would really find his stride, though, with the arrival of Kane. In the weeks and months preceding Bad Blood, Bearer had been appearing in vignettes, teasing the reveal of a terrible secret from Undertaker's past. Uncle Paul, I know you've been concealing a terrible secret. I know you have some news that will shock the world. And the truth shall set you free. Spread the news, Uncle Paul. Spread the news. The fire undertaker. The fire that sits my face and put me in the hospital. The pain. The sacred bond that we have between each other. That bond has been seared, Undertaker. One more chance, Undertaker. If you do not accept this final offer, I'm going to do something that only you know, Undertaker. A secret that only you know. But I will reveal it to the whole world. It is a secret that I made while I was standing over the graveside of your mother and father. You made reference to uh, The Undertaker having a brother, Cain. Why should we believe you that because his brother is alive? Why, why should we believe you? Why, you? why should you believe me? Why should you believe me? Because Cain told me so. That's why you should believe me. And your Undertaker told you. Your Undertaker told you that the story was the truth. But I tell you that Cain is alive. Yes, he is. Undertaker, you're a murderer. Last week, you threatened to kill me. The whole world, her world heard you. You're a murderer, Undertaker. You're a murderer. Mr. Bear, you have said for many weeks now that you're gonna prove that, that Cain exists, that Cain, the brother of the Undertaker, is alive. I don't know why we should believe you, quite frankly, after the heinous acts that you perpetrated. So what is your proof? Put your money where your mouth is for once. Jim Rose, are you calling me a liar? More or less, yes, sir, I am. You don't want to go there, brother. You don't want to go there at all. I am not a liar. If there's one thing I'm not, I'm not a liar. You can tell by the Undertaker's reaction. You can tell, Jim Ross. The whole world, world can tell. And I told you that I had the proof, and I had the proof right here with me tonight. They had another special bond. The two fashioned a little statue a little 
pendulum, if you will. They cut it in half. Each one of them had a piece of the statue, and they made a solemn, a sacred pledge to each other, Jim Ross. They pledged as long as each other lived, they would keep their part of that statue. Tonight, I have Kane's part of the statue. And tonight, Undertaker, wherever you are in this building, I know that you have the other half of the statue. Here in my hand is Kane's part of the statue. And then, right before that first Hell in a Cell match took place, Bearer told the whole story. Bearer, real name Bill Moody, previously known as the bleach blonde Percy Pringle when I watched him in World Class down in Texas, is widely beloved for his association with Undertaker and Kane, but in my opinion, hugely underrated as a performer. He was, if you'll recall, the rotund guy with the white face makeup who warbled, ooh, I'm not doing it justice. Brian, hit the clip. Yeah, he warbled that with the Undertaker's urn in his hand. Remember the urn? He was great, the thinking goes, but he sort of represented the sillier parts of the Undertaker's mythos. He was a signifier of creepiness that only really sandbagged the trajectory of a transcendent star. That's one way of thinking. I disagree. Anyway, right now, uh, when he starts teasing Kane, he, he he's shed the face paint and the black hair dye for this run, which somehow only served to make him look sillier. What, was the goth look just an affectation? Why would he do that? In the wrestling world, there's a lot of silliness, but we take it at face value. That's kind of the deal. Auburn Pompadour aside, Bear is inherently a comical character. You can almost hear the guffaw following his dad pun name. And the juxtaposition of him standing next to Taker always has a zombie Abbott and Costello vibe. But Bear was an astronomically gifted performer. He takes a horror novella's worth of backstory and introduces it into the WWE canon in a single monologue. A crowd of fans who were there to cheer and boo for the in-ring combat sit there wrapped as Moody tells them the story of a couple of kids called, yep, Undertaker and Kane. About 20 years to be exact. We're talking about a little funeral home sitting up on a hill, beautiful oak trees all around, and a wonderful, wonderful family-owned funeral home. The family lived upstairs. The father was the mortician who ran the funeral home. The mother was the secretary, the receptionist. But there were two little kids there. One kid was a little red-headed punk. And then there was a second kid, a sweet little kid named Kane. Bearer goes on to tell about how he worked at this funeral home, where he saw the young undertaker, the quote-unquote little red-headed punk who had the look of evil in his eyes. And his kid brother, Kane, he was always at Undertaker's heel. The two brothers always getting into all kinds of nefariousness. But you know, one particular afternoon, I was leaving to go to school. As I backed my car out of the funeral home, I looked behind and who do I see? That red head devil seed Undertaker 
with his little brother. Something was funny. It, it, something didn't seem right. But I went ahead and backed out of the driveway, went to school. I came back from school about 10 o'clock that night, and what do I see? I see fire trucks. I see ambulance. I see steam and smoke. And I see the funeral home in ashes. Someone burned down the funeral home. Inside the funeral home was this lovely family that took care of me. I looked over to the bushes. Who did I see in the bushes but the undertaker? Undertaker! You burnt the funeral home to the ground. And along with the funeral home, you killed your parents. You killed your family, Undertaker! When Kane finally debuted at Bad Blood, it was a surprise, sure, but narratively, it was obvious. Bearer had teased us with his early vignettes, gave us the backstory in the ring right before Bad Blood, and then, at the end of the Hell in a Cell match, he unleashed the movie monster. Kane even tore the door off the cage on his way into our lives. Mark's frustration was that he'd worked with a lot of big guys who could not match him uh, with the athleticism. And uh, he would actually have to really downgrade his game to have a match with him. And with me, he saw someone who could hang with him athletically and could, in the minds of the audience, put The Undertaker in jeopardy. So really, that was part of the character, was the fact that Kane had to be The Undertaker's equal. In fact, he had to be stronger than The Undertaker. For the first time ever, we wanted Undertaker to be the underdog. And there were a lot of guys in the locker room who would try to sabotage me in the ring. I, I went through that myself uh, a couple times. Um, and Mark was never like that. He was always trying to help, especially me. He was always trying to help me out because I think ultimately he saw an opponent that was viable and that could draw money. You know, if you think about it, what is Muhammad Ali without Joe Frazier? You know, I mean, what's Superman without Lex Luthor? Um, Captain America without the Red Skull? I mean, you have to have the villain for the hero to be successful. When Undertaker and Kane come face to face in the cell that night, that's when the rivalry is officially set in stone. We have our hero, we have our villain, and now we wait to see who's left standing at the end. The climax of the movie would take place four months later at WrestleMania. BS. The, uh, it was always to go to WrestleMania, uh, WrestleMania 14 in Boston. And then along the way, it was to build Kane up so that he was the equal to The Undertaker. Um, and I remember talking with Jim Cornette early on, and I, I was going to destroy every baby face on the card except for a few, you know, except for uh, Steve Austin and, you know, Shawn Michaels I would never touch. But otherwise, I was pretty much going to run through the roster and destroy everyone. Taker and I would not touch pretty much until WrestleMania. And that's why you saw some of the things where, like when, I lit the casket on fire. You know, that that was basically to just, it becomes very hard to keep that story going when you still have months to go, you know, and you can't touch, right? So 
that was why that was done. But yes, everything along the way was building Kane up, building anticipation of the match at WrestleMania and uh, keeping Kane and Undertaker engaged, but not fighting. It's scary, even to the monsters. Absolutely. There was a lot of pressure on me at that point because I had failed twice. Now, you can rationalize and say the Isaac Yankum character uh, wasn't really my fault. It was, you know, because I just didn't do what I should have with it. Uh, you can also say, well, the, the, you did a lot better at the fake Diesel character, but it wasn't a great character. Well, yeah, that's great, except still a failure. I'm still the person that was doing it. Now it's a different ballgame because now it is straight up. You're working with Undertaker and you guys are going to go to WrestleMania in a main event match. Okay. So there is no room to fail. There is no margin of error in this one. You have to do it. Uh, and if you don't, of course, I realized that if I didn't, that there would not be another opportunity. Just, you know, how, how could I even say, hey, I can still do this when I get the opportunity of a lifetime and not be able to pull it off? Did he pull it off? Spoiler alert, yes. But how did he pull it off? Or better yet, how does horror ever get pulled off in pro wrestling? I'll investigate after the break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. So here we are, Michaels and Taker are eight innings in to an epic brawl, and the lights go down, and here comes Kane. Here's Vince McMahon's call again. That's gotta be, that's gotta be Kane! That's gotta be Kane! Actually, that's not Vince McMahon's call. That is a redub by Vince McMahon of Vince McMahon's original call. Here's the original. See if you can tell the difference. Kane! That's gotta be Kane! Could you? Maybe, maybe not. Not a big change, but it was important. At least it was important to WWE. It raised the stakes just subtly, and you can see why they'd want to get it just right. This is not a wrestling match. This is a horror movie, and there's nothing wrong with a second take. So Kane comes in. 
He tears the metal door off the steel cage. Part of the reason for the cage was this moment. And then he climbs into the ring. While Sean lays motionless on the mat, The Undertaker finally gets a look at his long-lost brother. When they came face-to-face in the ring inside that cell, these two giant men staring each other down, it wasn't the muscles or the costumes or the long hair that did the heavy lifting. It was all in The Undertaker's eyes. His subtle emotional work as he realized who he was looking at for the first time. Kane would cost Undertaker the match, but it was kind of a false finish when you think about it. In the real story they were telling here, this wasn't the ending. This was barely the beginning. That was the moment one of the most legendary feuds in WWE history was born. That was the moment the movie really started. The next four months, from now until WrestleMania, it was a slow build, teasing the audience before ever putting the brothers in the ring together. And WrestleMania 14... On its own, it was an epic horror movie third act showdown, with your hero seemingly killing the villain five times before we finally went down for the count. This being a rare monster-on-monster match, the hero nearly died a couple of times too. And after The Undertaker finally won, well, Kane popped right back up and attacked him again. It was the teaser for the sequel that everybody was already thirsting for. In the years that followed, Kane and The Undertaker would be rivals, they would be partners, and even when they were unaffiliated, they were always sort of lurking in the shadows of each other's storylines. The WrestleMania 14 was the ending of the first movie, and it lived up to expectations. Undead Powerhouse versus Fire Scarred Gollum Brother. It's like Freddy versus Jason, if Freddy and Jason were both seven foot tall and brothers. Uh, That matters because it isn't just an epic rivalry that started here. It's, well, an epic. It's a horror movie series that keeps coming back with sequels year after year. That's hardly a metaphor. The Undertaker Kane mythos is horror by just about any definition. It's a gothic novel that ends and then, like its protagonists, sits right back up and starts terrorizing us again. I guess the bigger question, my bigger question, the more existential question is, is pro wrestling as a form an appropriate arena for the horror genre? Wrestling can hold us wrapped with action, with drama, with comedy, and even with romance at times, but horror is a tough genre just to cram in, especially when the main stage is live under the bright house lights of a basketball arena. Now, obviously there are exceptions and The Undertaker and Kane have made most of them, darkened arenas lit with fire or lightning bolts and or filled with smoke, attended by eerie music, a creepy organ or the toll of a bell, or pre-taped vignettes in dark boiler rooms, pre-taped vignettes in graveyards, pre-taped vignettes in coffin factories. You get the idea. It's not always in the middle of the ring, but especially in the Attitude Era, when everything was trying so hard to be real and gritty, or at least realistic in that 90s gritty slash cool way, how is it that in that era of all eras, this literal horror story got so much traction? It's hard to look back and not think that objective coolness aside, it's a little out of place. Maybe I'm overthinking it, but as long as I'm overthinking it, I decided I should get an expert opinion. Who would understand the interplay of horror and wrestling better than the guy who directed the movie Pro Wrestlers vs. Zombies, the 2014 satirical horror flick starring Rowdy Roddy Piper, Kurt Angle, Matt Hardy, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and Shane Douglas. Brief aside, Shane Douglas's IMDb page photo is him as Dean Douglas in WWE circa 1995, which is just 
funny. Anyway, the man who directed that beautiful film, as well as other horror movies like Breeding Farm, Kecksburg, and the upcoming Transubstantiation, is Cody Knotts. Hey, I'm Cody Knotts, and I was the director of Pro Wrestlers vs. Zombies, which was good old American violence. Is it correct to call you, or is it, or is it, are you comfortable with being called a horror movie director, or is that too narrow? Yeah, that, that's what I make. Fair to say that you're comfortable in, in the darkness, the darker aspects of, of humanity. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Where did the pro wrestlers versus zombies come from? I had a plan to make films, always wanted to. And so we had a three-part idea of, or let's make three films. One would be a religious horror film. I uh, had no idea what I was doing. Uh, one would be a uh, Eli Roth torture porn film, which unfortunately got lots of attention and was made on no money. A big part of me regrets making it. It was really stupid. And then uh, we, in the third, and the whole plan of the big one was to make pro wrestlers. And that, and so my son liked wrestling and zombies, and I thought this would be really cool. And I loved the attitude era. Absolutely loved uh, when wrestling was was raw and real, instead of just calling itself raw. Yeah, it's a male soap opera written for men. What men are really thinking, not what women perceive men should think. When he was making pro wrestlers versus zombies, Cody got to spend a lot of time with Piper who embodied the thing that attracted him most to the sport, the blurry line between real and unreal. So if you ask me my favorite character in films, it's Michael Corleone. You know, I, I like the guys that manipulate everything uh-huh. um, and, and are the Machiavellians. So those guys appeal to me more. And oddly enough, in spite of being a wrestler, I saw that Marathi. Oh, yeah. I saw Marathi manipulate everybody. And I'll tell you a really cool story about Roddy. The last conversation we had, I dropped him off at a hotel room after we did a promotion in New York City and in New Jersey. And I said, Roddy, I have to ask you, I know you tricked out the coconut, but how real was it when Jimmy got mad at you, when Snooka got mad at you and you, and you hit him with the coconut? So I asked how real. And he said, how real was it for you? Wow. And I said, really damn real. He said, Cody, there's your answer. I remember him pointing at me and saying that, and I went, hell yes. I got the answer to something I wanted to know when I was like 12 years old. And Roddy's never said, never said the answer. He kept that a big secret. And I'm like, fuck yes, I got the answer. Knotts is a deep thinker and a fan of wrestling and horror for as long as he can remember, but that didn't mean he was an automatic fan of the showy spookiness of The Undertaker. Just the opposite, actually. Taker might have been spooky, but to Knotts, he wasn't real enough. I remember my my cousin who loved both Kane and Undertaker. He would get so excited. They're so big. I mean, it's almost that idea of these huge men. Um, and he really loved the storylines. And, and so... And he's a judge now. Oh, he probably hate me telling this. Like, he's, um, you know, so they they absolutely worked. Um, it's just for me, you know, I I'm. This will sound odd, but I was never an Undertaker fan. Like, I was like, you know, when I liked Undertaker is when what him and Mankind, mm-hmm. the nerds fights, like that stuff. That I loved, and I loved the wrestling of it, uh, the side story stuff. I was like, okay. You know, I was a guy, you talked about that era before. What people forget when they have like Hillbilly Jim and all of those guys is they also have Bob Backlund. Yeah. 
And Bob Backlund sold it. He'd go out there and put people in a chicken wing and, you know, traditional wrestling, right? And then and then some villain would, you know, so there was a uh, a side that made it still feel real, even then. As someone who's so steeped in, you know, horror, do you think that, it, just in your opinion, is, is wrestling a, then a bad venue for telling, like, horror stories? No. I, I think wrestling could be great. I, I think it'd be great. You know, I think Kevin Sullivan's closer to what would be real horror. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I think Kevin was closer to, to that than, than the almost cartoonish stuff of The Undertaker. He makes a great point. In the early 80s, in championship wrestling from Florida, the territory run by Eddie Graham and his son Mike Graham, the territory was thriving thanks to stars like Dusty Rhodes, Blackjack Mulligan, Barry and Kendall Windham, and, of course, Mike Graham. Percy Pringle actually spent some time there, too, as a manager. And their announcer was Gordon Soley, one of the absolute greatest to ever pick up a microphone. On May 24th, 1973, in Kansas City, the gentleman to my left electrified the professional sports world when he defeated the highly successful world heavyweight wrestling champion, Dory Funk Jr. His name is Harley Race. One of the most memorable stars of that region, though, was a short, stocky Boston kid named Kevin Sullivan. He started off as a clean-cut babyface, but eventually became pro wrestling's one-man satanic panic, the Alice Cooper of the muscle headset. In conservative Florida, he wore black eyeliner and evoked mysticism and generally freaked everybody out. Wrestling fans will remember him from his long run in WCW as a wrestler and a booker, see the Pelman's Got a Gun episode, but if you Google his name, you'll immediately find photos of the Florida period, with him in eye paint and black leather, a black X painted on his forehead, and a boa constrictor wrapped around his shoulders. It was thoroughly freaky stuff at the time. I didn't grow up in Florida, but I spent some summers there, and of course, I found the wrestling show wherever we went. I caught enough of Sullivan's act to have literal nightmares about him for years afterwards. Knotts was right. If anyone knew how to do horror and pro wrestling, it was Kevin Sullivan. With some reasonable trepidation, given the unsettling effect he had on my childhood, I gave him a call. For the record, it was late evening when we talked, and Sullivan was winding down. I didn't ask what he was drinking, but yes, I believe that's ice falling into a glass that you're hearing. Is satanic gimmick the right, is that an okay phrase to use or do you prefer to call it something else? I prefer to call it something else because I never use the word devil in any of my interviews. I prefer, obviously, because people aren't smart to Hindu, um, Buddhist gods. So, yeah, I had spent a lot of time in Malaysia. Hong Kong. I lived in Singapore for six, six months steadily, but I was there for off and on for a year for nine months. And I traveled all over. And I'm not one of those guys that just likes to sit in his room. When I was in Singapore, let me give you a little history. Uh, Singapore is run by a benevolent dictator because in the early 1900s, they had a religious war. And what they did was 
they came down with Gatling guns and shot a bunch of people and left them in the streets for a long time. That ended all of the religious wars. Like when I was in Singapore, where I stayed, two blocks from where I stayed, there was a, I think I told you guys, there was a mosque, there was a Jewish temple, there was a Catholic church, there was a Presbyterian church. It was only a country of 2.6 million people. Today, it has more like 6 million people. And probably has the most diverse number of religions in the world. So I would go to the cave temples and go to museums and different things. And I was going to Japan from there and Samoa, uh, like I said, Malaysia, Jakarta, Hong Kong, Singapore. And I said, the American people don't really know that part of the world at all. I don't think most people have traveled there, especially at the time I was there. And I said, I think I can do something with this. Sullivan took pieces of the religious influences he found in Singapore and worked them into a new heel character in Florida. The idea wasn't to be a Satan worshiper at all, but that's what people almost wanted to see. So when I went back to the States, I started off really slow, too. I didn't start off as the crazed lunatic. I started very lightly. And you got to remember, this is Florida, 1980s. I started a very lightly put mascara under my eyes, like maybe I've been up for a while. So I was kind of in Florida. Um, without saying it, there's a problem. And then, if you remember, Billy Idol was hot. Michael Jackson thriller had came out. The horror movie genres came out. MTV had first started. There was a lot of darkness. And I would watch MTV and I would watch horror movies. And I said, everybody wants to be scared. So I follow that and each week it got a little darker and darker. Was that also around the time when like there was the whole like satanic panic epidemic? Yeah, like- yeah, yeah. And I think that's how people thought this is satanic rather than what I wanted it to be. Uh, in a different way, it would be like I was kidnapped by a cult in Asia and I came back. So, but they couldn't really associate that, like I said before, because mm-hmm. most people don't understand. Uh, we're talking 40 years ago. Most people don't understand. 40 years ago, couldn't put Malaysia on the map, never mind knowing about it. You know what I mean? He started off a family, a cult of similarly dark wrestlers, and they lived the part. He shaved half of Luna Vachon's head on TV. He brought in Mark Lewin as Purple Haze and made an epic introductory video of him emerging from the mist on the beach with King Curtis Iakea doing the voiceover. Just awesomely weird and creepy work. The Haze, stand for the Haze. The Haze has come and it has been decreed from the darkness, from the 
terrible. He has arisen. He has arisen. So everybody sort of believed that we were nuts, you know what I mean? And then I got the family, my group of people against the family, Dusty, Blackjack, Barry, Kendall, and we were off and running. What kind of reaction did you get from, like, fans? We had what they called back then white heat. I mean, it was brutal. I mean, we'd have to stay in the dressing room an hour after the matches ended. And uh, we, me and Mark, or in my group, I wouldn't let anybody go out and watch the matches or even put their head out. They didn't see us until we walked out. So we kept the mystique going. And that's where I have to say that The Undertaker did such a magnificent job for, what, 30 years? Mm-hmm. He didn't break character. Nobody knew anything about him. He wasn't on social media. And, I mean, he's the king of uh, horror genre, I think. Why do you think that you had that white heat? Why, why do you think that it worked so well that first time? It scared people. Mm-hmm. It scared people. You know, the Manson thing hadn't been that far in the past. It was probably the first start of some nutty people. I mean, I was in Tampa. And right as the gimmick was going, some guy threw a bomb in a shopping store, you know, like a Piggly Wiggly or whatever it was in the place caught on fire. And it was horrible, but I think people thought this guy might have been one of our followers. Mm-hmm. Things just fell in line for us, too. You know what I mean? Years later, Sullivan tried to recreate the same vibe when he went to WCW and built the Dungeon of Doom stable a group of horror movie monsters that were bent on destroying Hulk Hogan, but the same magic wasn't there. It was a different era, after all, a time when fans were beginning to thirst for reality instead of silliness, which is, again, why The Undertaker and Kane were such outliers. But as Sullivan tells the story, the dungeon was a way to use a bunch of Hogan's buddies and placate the Hulkster while he tried to talk him into one of the most horrific things in wrestling history, Hogan turning heel. I sacrificed myself and those guys because it became a little too cartoonish, okay? But the reason why I did that, right when I I was booking in WCW and I saw the reaction Hogan was getting, and it wasn't the same reaction. Mm-hmm. People started to boo him. And I came up to him and said, you know, everything about Turner Hill said, brother, you crazy? And all his friends, when they heard that, I said, what are you, crazy, crazy? And I knew it was the only thing he could do. So he had all his friends there, you know, Brutus, the Shark, Ming, a list of the guys. And I thought, and this is no disrespect to anybody, they weren't the workers that the guys of this new generation were. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I can lump them all together rather than split them up the card. And I can show Hulk that I'm willing to work with him. Do you think the audience was as afraid of the Dungeon of Doom as they were of, of no, the original? <laughs> no, it was a cartoon thing. You know, Curtis, you know, the famous one where Hogan's 
he comes to the dungeon and he sticks his hand in. He takes it out like he's burnt. He says, the water's cold. I mean, it was it was the only time I think I ever did comedy in my life. <laughs> and uh, it was so far removed. Here's the crazy thing. It was so far removed. I still get heat over it, but now it's like people look at it as like, I hear people say, oh, I, when I was a kid, I loved the dungeon. You know, wrestling to me is like the circus. If you don't like the acrobats, the next act is the sword swallows. And if you don't like them, the high wire uh, people. Uh-huh. If you don't like them, at the end of the show, Gunther Gabriel Williams was going to stick his head in the lion's mouth. You know what I mean? Wrestling's going to be a little bit like the circus. So the thing about the Dungeon of Doom, it was a means to an end for Hogan to trust me and for him to see that I was really trying to help him to turn, keep his career going. Kevin Sullivan wasn't the first wrestler to strike fear into the hearts of wrestling fans. I mean, that's what almost every great heel has tried to do since the beginning. Every Nazi, every monster, all of them. But horror, this was something different. Uh, were you influenced by any other wrestling gimmicks outside of your own experience and travels? Any, any other wrestling gimmicks that brought that sort of horror aspect to the... Well, truthfully... One of my dearest friends was the Sheik. The original Sheik was Ed Farhat, a Lebanese-American wrestler from Michigan who, starting around 1949, took on the gimmick of the Sheik, a kefio-wearing, prayer mat-praying villain who threw fireballs and stabbed his opponents with a taped-up pencil. Yes, you heard that right, a pencil. He never spoke, he just mumbled inanely. And despite being like 5'8", generously, and looking like a fit chemistry teacher, he was terrifying. He wrestled all the big stars of the era, or rather, eras. His career spanned half a century. But in his heyday, he went toe-to-toe with Bobo Brazil, San Martino, Freddie Blassie, Fez, Carpentier, Chief J. Strongbow, even Nature Boy Buddy Rogers. The Sheik almost died in a barbed wire death match in Japan when he was a week shy of 66. He's famous for innovating the hardcore style of pro wrestling, but if you wanted to say he innovated the horror style of pro wrestling, I wouldn't argue with you. Watching him come to the ring was enough to send kids running. Adults, too. And the Sheik was on the card in Boston. And when he came out of the dress room, the building, I thought, moved the energy. And he jumped in the ring and he beat, I think it was Sparrow Sarion. Somebody who's tried to correct me on that, but I'm pretty sure it was Sparrow. And Sparrow was a big baby face, and he was like the number two baby face at the time. And he destroyed him, and the whole building was scared of him. And, you know, I got to know him very well. I actually worked for him for about three months in Canada. And he was no bigger than I was, and I thought, Wow, this guy's something special. But if anybody influenced me, it was him. And maybe a little bit of Abdullah. That's Abdullah the Butcher, the obese, wild-eyed Sudanese assassin, whose every match would end in a bloody mess. He probably had more disqualifications than victories. 
Abdullah was legendary for taping razor blades into his finger tape to allow for easy access bloodletting. Razors are stock and trade in the pro wrestling world. That's how Shawn Michaels cut his head at bad blood. If you want to up the ante in a match, you keep a little piece of broken razor in your wrist tape, and after you get hit with a chair, you roll over and nick your forehead with it, and bada-bing, you have a bright red trickle running down your head that screams, this is serious. But Abdullah, the stories are that he liberally used his blades on his opponents too, with little or no consent. He was determined to get the crowd flinching and screaming at any cost. You can find videos of the terror he wrought on the crowd. I mean, there's a match he had against the legendary Bruiser Brody in Puerto Rico where the fight spills out into the audience and everybody just clears out. Like everybody's running for cover, like Godzilla and Mothra are brawling through the city. That's the kind of terror you want to evoke in a pro wrestling horror story. But that's just one moment. A moment that you can repeat over and over again, sure, but when Kane arrived in WWE, it was the beginning of a horror anthology that spanned decades. What I think is amazing is how long Kane and The Undertaker lasted. They had been heels, they had been baby faces back at heel, and nobody, I mean, The Undertaker, to me, I've said this a bunch of times, I don't think anybody's drawn the money the Undertaker has over that length of time. Kane did very well, too. But the Undertaker, I have to take my hats off to him. I don't think the WWE would have been as big as they were without the Undertaker. Mm -hmm. He was always the guy that when things were down, you could go to and you knew you were going to get back on track. Mm -hmm. My hats are, like I said, off to him and Kane too. Kane, that worked perfectly. Why do you think that they were able to keep it going for so long? I mean, there were so many, there were so many kind of reboots and restarts, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's a pretty, if you had pitched that, that, that gimmick in, create, in a creative meeting, you would say, okay, but what next? Because it seems pretty limited, right? Yeah, but they became that character. From what I understand, uh, The Undertaker always dressed in black in the airport. Mm -hmm. He didn't talk to fans. He wasn't on social media until lately. There was a mystique about him. And I know we're in a big social media world and you can't do without it, right? But do you think it's funny that The Undertaker wasn't on social media until lately? Or is Brock Lesnar on social media? No. So the commitment to the character is a big deal, especially in pro wrestling. There's not much, I mean, it's, it's cut when the Attitude Era was going on. Let me ask you this. They wouldn't make so many uh, superhero movies if they're not trying money, right? Oh, yeah. I happen to like them, okay? Because I grew up with comic books. Mm -hmm. When I go and watch the movie, what if during the movie they said cut and they sat around smoking a cigarette and talking to one another and oh, getting on the phone? It's the willing suspension of disbelief that you enjoy. It's like I said, when I was an amateur wrestler, I knew it was bullshit because I had wrestled. But 
by the time the third match was on, and my brother was the same. I remember me and my brother went to the matches one time together, and I drug him, and he said, oh, this is crap. By the main event, he's up and yelling and screaming. I'm thinking, well, I didn't think you liked this. You know what I mean? Willing suspension of disbelief is a huge thing. Commitment to the party. It feels like a weird way to think about pro wrestling characters, especially one so off the realism scale as these two. Wrestling is a world of silly gimmicks, and the years preceding the Attitude Era were stuffed with them. It's a funny thing, though. People always talk about those years, and they joke about the wrestling hog farmer, or the wrestling garbage man, or the wrestling hockey player, or the wrestling dentist, or the wrestling clown. The wrestling clown, doink, at least in his original Matt Bourne incarnation, was actually awesome. But people never complain about the wrestling Old West zombie mortician. They never complain about his long-lost brother dressed like a superhero to cover up his burn scars. They never complain that those two guys can summon fire and lightning and turn the lights out in the stadium at will. The difference between Undertaker and Kane and all those other silly gimmicks wasn't really qualitative, it was just that they worked. The wrestlers and the promoter made them work and the fans gravitated to them. All of that ephemeral pro wrestling magical stuff you can't put into words. It's the same reason we remember Michael Myers and Hannibal Lecter and not like Jack Frost or Dr. Giggles. Think about The Undertaker's eyes as he was looking at Kane. Look at their movements, the Michael Myers sit-up, the methodical, plodding footsteps, the way Kane would tilt his head like a dog trying to understand his owner. And Sullivan is right. It's the commitment to the craft, keeping kayfabe even in a post-kayfabe world, staying in character at all costs. The Undertaker wore black for the better part of 30 years and didn't start giving real interviews until just the past few years. Kane took it seriously too, and these are two guys who we knew weren't who they were portraying. Just by looking at him, everybody knew Kane had been fake Diesel and Isaac Yankum. And Undertaker, he previously played mean Mark Callis in WCW, and he didn't even wear a mask to hide the fact. It was all a put on, but they were committed. We believed because they did too. So how does horror work in the Attitude Era? A time when real was at such a premium, when guys were using their real names and storylines were based off real life backstage goings on? It's because, well, for one thing, there were no backstage rumors about The Undertaker or Kane. They never threatened to leave for WCW. But more than anything, it was a commitment to character. And well, as intrinsic as pro wrestling is, primal urges, mortal combat, good versus evil, I think there's something even more intrinsic at work here. Human beings like being scared. They like testing themselves, tiptoeing right up to the line with their fingers covering their eyes and living to talk about it. The Attitude Era was about the stuff that makes us human in the most boorish possible way. Violence, sex, middle fingers and crotch chops. Part of what makes us human is fear. Undertaker and Kane kept wrestling for years. Undertaker retired in 2020, and Kane retired. I don't even know if, did Kane retire? He went into the Hall of Fame in 2021. But both of them were too important, too central, too intrinsic to WWE for them to ever step away, for the fans or the company to ever let them step away. But the horror mythology didn't end with them. There has been a long line of next Undertakers in pro wrestling, guys with spooky lighting and smoke and gothic music. 
Nobody's ever caught on the way that they have, though. A lot of the new breed, it must be said, are based in camp and nostalgia. And that's fine. It really can be fun. But Undertaker and Kane were on the cusp, coming right out of the era in which we believed, or at least we were supposed to, and they stormed into the Attitude Era like Freddy Krueger tearing his way out of your dreams and into the real world. That's what made it work. If anybody's actually come close to fulfilling the promise of what those guys did, it's Bray Wyatt. And his greatest gift among many is commitment to the part, commitment to the craft, commitment to his character. He understands what he's trying to do better than anyone else, and it shows. Well, showed. WWE released him last year, but the fans have been clamoring for him to come back ever since. There are rumors he'll be back soon. There always are. Fans just can't let a good villain die. For his part, The Undertaker is touring around and doing one-man shows talking about his career. I saw him in Nashville during SummerSlam weekend. He's great. He's surprisingly hilarious, still halfway terrifying, still wearing all black. Kane appeared during SummerSlam to welcome everyone to Nashville. He's the mayor of Knox County now, where Knoxville is. Even in a business suit, he made the fire shoot out of the ring post just like he always did. Retirement or no, would anyone actually be surprised to see them going at it at WrestleMania again next year? No. Horror movie monsters never really die. And their commitment never dies either. It's funny. I remember one night, um, Undertaker and I are having a match uh, in Toronto, I think. And the crowd, someone in the crowd, and you know, we always call Toronto Bizarro World uh, because um, Canadian fans can, you know, they, they can be a little different and they take things a little different way and they start chanting Isaac Gank and DDS. And I kick Mark right in the face and he looks at me, he's like, man, I'm not the one saying that. Stop hitting me, right? I wrote and reported this podcast. The show is executive produced by superstar Bill Simmons, Sean the Strangler Fennessy, and Jumpin' Juliet Littman. Our producers are B. Brian H. Walters, Big Papa Pump Ben Cruz, and Vivacious Vikram Patel. Story editing by Hacksaw Cal Davenport. Sound design and final mixing by Sweet Scott Somerville. The music you hear in this episode is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing by Amar, Bad News, Burton, and fact checking by Dangerous Damian Burchard. Art direction and illustration by me. I'm David Shoemaker, AKA The Mask Man. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.